Our text for this afternoon is verses 5 through 9, and this is the Word of God. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer is God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Will you pray with me? Father, as we continue in a study of your word, I ask that you will bless us and bless your church as you move in your spirit through your word. That's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. And you can be seated. God has a plan and a purpose for the life of every believer. God wants more for you than to simply save your soul and give you a ticket to heaven. God wants to see you saved. God wants to see you grow. And part of Christian growth is that you, by the aid of God's Spirit, would move from just worshiping God on Sundays to a place where you serve the Lord with your entire life. As we get ready to study this passage today, I want you to already begin by asking God how you might serve him. Ask God to show you where in your life you could do more to find joy in his kingdom. Ask God to convince you of the need for servant-hearted leaders in the local church. And ask God to provide this church with all the leaders we need. In our study today, we're going to find four points but unlike the normal pattern, each point has a little two parts to it. Something you should see as a general truth from the passage, and there will be something for you to do. And there's something for all Christians to do here, regardless of your current or your future role in church leadership. So let's get started. Point number one, recognize the importance of leadership in the church. That's the general, right? For you, ask God to help you to become a leader. Look at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, Paul writes, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. You may remember that Paul, the author of this letter, was arrested and put in prison in Rome at the end of the book of Acts. As best we can tell, Paul was eventually freed from that prison sometime around the, the year A.D. 61 or 62. And very shortly after his release, Paul set off with his friends Timothy and Titus to continue the work of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. During that time, Paul did a brief bit of ministry on the island of Crete. Crete, an island in the Mediterranean Sea, is 
little south of the Aegean. And in Paul's day, Crete was a very important stop for many commercial ships and traders. So Crete was an island that was flooded with cultures and beliefs of all sorts because people came there from all over the place. And as a new church began to take hold in the cities of this culturally diverse island, it makes sense that Paul wanted to be sure that it was ready to function faithfully, that the church was ready to function faithfully in the middle of a very difficult environment. Well, for some reason, Paul didn't feel he could stay on Crete for a long time, but he didn't think everything was yet in order. So Paul left Titus behind to straighten out what needed to be straightened out. In the greeting, Paul said that he was writing this whole letter, this three-chapter book we have in our Bibles, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. If Paul is writing for the sake of the people's faith and their knowledge leading to godliness. He's writing for their salvation and their sanctification. I think it's significant that Paul starts off the letter by giving Titus the task of appointing elders in every town. Paul, inspired by God, clearly thinks that the first step in getting the church in Crete going well after the people have begun to receive Christ is to put solid godly leaders in charge. You know, in our day, there are people who think that spreading the gospel, carrying the gospel into a foreign land is all that missionaries need to do. Clearly, Paul, inspired by God, did not think so. Though Paul couldn't stay in Crete, Paul believed it was worth it to leave Titus behind to make sure that the churches on Crete were properly structured and led by qualified godly men who would serve as elders. Now, what are elders? It's an important thing. If we're going to appoint elders, we better know what they are, right? If you grew up in a Reformed church, or if you grew up in a Presbyterian church, the word elders is not really foreign to you. But if you grew up in some other sort of church, it may be that the idea of a church having elders is not super familiar. I know that for me, growing up in a Southern Baptist church in Illinois, I didn't hear anything about elders. And the local church that I was in did not have men who filled that position. We didn't function like that. And probably wasn't to our good. Let me ask you, okay, how many of you grew up in churches with elders? How many of you didn't? Yeah. Did you hear that more of us were on the other side of that? On the non-elder side? Interesting, huh? So, let's make sure we all know what we're talking about. The Bible speaks of two offices, two official roles in the church. You could call the roles elders and deacons, okay? Elders and deacons. Those are the only two offices in the church the Bible talks about. Now, deacons, the word means servants. Deacons are tasked by God with acts of service in the church so that they can free the elders of the church to fulfill their role. That's what deacons are supposed to do, and we love our deacons. Now, you can find three Greek terms 
for the role that I call elder. And those three Greek terms find their way into English in about five different labels, but they're all one office in the church. So let me show you the Greek words. We can learn what they are, okay? The Greek word presbuteros is a word that means elder. Nice, right? The concept of an elder is exactly what that word sounds like at one point. When you think elder, you should think older. And the idea of a culture, of that culture of that day, was that as a man ages, he'll gain wisdom and he'll be able to be a leader in his community. Back in the Old Testament, men who were elders would sit in their city gates and they would lead the people. Job speaks of the respect that he had been given while he was an elder, even respected by other elders before his calamity came on him. In the New Testament era, Jewish synagogues were led, governed by elders, older men who were part of the community and who presumably had those char- both, both character and, and wisdom. So when you think elder, think of the wisdom that comes with age and experience. Now, I do not think that men who serve as church elders have to be of any particular numerical age. But the word of God is clear that a recent convert to the faith cannot serve in the role of elder. Experience as a Christian and the wisdom that comes with that experience is what we're looking at here. Now, a second Greek word for the office that I call elder, this church office, is episkopos. In English, that could be translated as bishop or overseer. Some lexicons like to use the concept of superintendent to help you understand what's being said here. Bishops, overseers, that role is to be authoritative and provide oversight and caring for the church. Finally, there's the Greek word poimen, which we could translate shepherd or pastor. When you think about that role, think about what you know from other Bible lessons that a shepherd does. Shepherds take care of sheep. How? They feed sheep. They protect sheep from dangers. They redirect sheep from wandering off the path. That's what pastors are supposed to do. Now, Remember, I already told you, all those words are speaking of the one office in the church, elder, as opposed to the office of deacon. These terms all describe one kind of man. Elders, bishops, overseers, shepherds, pastors. It's all the same job. It's the same job with just different words to describe it. They highlight different aspects of the character or the responsibility of those men who serve in that role. But a pastor is an elder, is an overseer. So what's the difference between a pastor and an elder? Nothing. What's the difference between an elder and an overseer? Nothing. What's the difference between an overseer and a pastor? Nothing. That elders, pastors, and overseers refers to just one office, that's important because if you're part of Providence Reformed Church, you should not think that Travis is a pastor while Jason and Ed are elders. We're all elders, and we're all pastors, and we're all overseers, and we have the job of shepherding by caring for and 
feeding and leading the church with the Word of God. And we have the job of overseeing the church with biblical authority. And we have the job of hopefully leading with wisdom and experience like elders. But we have the same job. And I am grateful to God for Jason and Ed and for their service in our church to shepherd, to elder, to oversee our congregation. Well, Paul called on Titus to appoint elders, plural, in every town, singular. That indicates to us that every local church should have more than one elder doing the work. It's not good for a church to have only one man who bears that load, who wields that authority. Moses in the Old Testament had to learn that he couldn't lead Israel all by himself. We need a group of godly men to oversee and care for the church. And I'll be honest with you, and I think Jason and Ed would agree with this, PRSA, PRC could use a few more. We could use a few more elders helping us shepherd and oversee this body. Elders are to be a group of men of godly character who lead in the local church. They will shepherd the church by feeding the people with the word of God. They will protect the church by warning of dangers and even calling people to turn from going down wrong paths. Elders have a biblical authority to lead in the church. But elders are subject to the word of God and they are not to place themselves above the congregation united as a whole. That's why we have elders at PRC, but our congregation still votes to affirm who will serve as an elder, and the congregation votes to affirm the important recommendations made by the elders. When the congregation is united under the word of God, they can speak into the elders. That makes sense. Now, Paul said to Titus that appointing elders was at the heart of why he left him in Crete. Now, y'all think with me for a second. Do you think that when Paul wrote this, Titus is going, oh, that's why you left me here. What do you think? Y'all, how many think Titus totally had no idea why he was left on Crete? Just Paul just ditched him one day and left him this note. Anybody going for that? No. Paul wrote this letter so Titus could prove to the people in the local churches on the island that Paul the Apostle had sent Titus out with the authority of Paul the Apostle to help the churches get set up properly. That's why he says, this is why I left you there. So Titus can show the people, here's why he left me here. Now, it might be tempting for you right now to think for yourself, he's going to have to preach about pastors now. That's not me. So I'm just going to check out and take a nap. Don't do that. Why not? I'll give you three reasons. First, you're not sitting in pews. You're sitting in chairs. And you could fall out of them if you take a nap. And it would hurt. And then I would hear it and I would know that you had done it. And then I would ask the people around you, who was it that fell out of their chair <laughs> sleeping? I mean, I understand that the Bridges kids sleep during, you know. <laughs> I've seen some things on Facebook. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> no. Why, why not check out right now? First of all, it's possible that some of you men here may grow one day to meet the qualifications of an elder in the church that you serve in. 
Men, pay attention to see if what's being said here is true of you. Wives who have godly husbands, nudge them. Say, look, you better pay attention, man. Secondly, it's possible, in fact, that whoever's hearing this is not going to become a church elder. I mean, the, the role of church elder is set apart for men in the church, so if you're a lady, that's not going to be your role. Or maybe for some, there are things in your life that have kept you from being able to qualify as a church elder, or you know you're not shaped like that. But either way, I don't, want you to, I don't want you to despair because the importance of elders, as we see it in Titus 1.5, reminds us that the church needs godly people to fill roles of leadership of all kinds. We need people to lead through their serving in the body. So yeah, we need elders, we do, but we need leaders in a variety of other ministry areas that may not be called elder. If the call to appoint elders, though, was the first call in Titus, that call must be important. And if the call for elders is important, then the call for leaders of all kinds is important. And if the call for leaders in the scripture is important, then you better be asking God right now, if you're a Christian, how do I fulfill the call in one form or another? Ask God to shape you into a servant leader. God has designed every one of us uniquely. We've got unique talents, unique gifts, unique abilities. God made you with the unique gifts that you have on purpose. And you've got a role in the church that you're supposed to be playing. Safe to say that if all you do related to the church is come in and sing the songs and give your money and listen to messages... God wants more for you and from you than this. I'm glad if you're here. I'm, I'm very sad when you're not here. And I'm not being silly there. If you're a part of this church body, it hurts you and it hurts the body when being gathered with us isn't a priority. Your commitment to Christ shows by you making time to gather with the body. So I'm glad you're here. But like I said, God wants more from you and God wants more for you than attendance alone. There's more joy to be had in the service of God. So ask God, how can I serve you more for that joy? How can I lead others if that's your shape for me? Now, if you're willing to at least take on the challenge, listen, maybe God will call you to step up and serve and lead someday, there's some parts of your life that every one of us have to get in order in order to do that rightly, and the rest of the passage will give us three categories of life you need to have in order to serve God faithfully. So point number two, recognize the importance of the family life of a leader. And for you, think about this. Here's what you need to be saying to yourself. I've got to get my family life in order to be a leader. Look at verse 6. 
If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So as Paul tells Titus how to find good elders for the church, he starts in the category of the family. And this tells us that the way that a man relates to his family is absolutely crucial for the life of any leader or key server in the church. In fact, if you are to properly set your priorities for your life, if you're going to make a number one, number two, number three list of what's important in your life, you must have at the top of the list your own walk with God, but right after your own personal walk with God comes your relationship with your family. The elder, it says, is to be, or an overseer is to be, above reproach. The phrase above above reproach means that the elder is not the kind of person that people can accuse of impropriety. Not saying that he's a perfect man, but that people are not going to be able to make claims of major unfaithfulness. The point here is that the godly leader will not give the world any ammunition to fire at him regarding his relationship with his family. So what relationship is most important inside the family? family? If I know my relationship with God is number one, my family's got to be number two before anything else, before my job, before anything else. What's first inside my family? It's what comes first in the list. An elder in the church must be the husband of one wife. Literally in Greek, the elder must be a one-woman man. Now, without question, this prevents men who are married to more than one woman, polygamists, from serving as elders. But it seems to go deeper than that. Leaders in the church must be the kind of people who keep their marital commitments. A one-woman man does not have wandering eyes, wandering hands, or a wandering heart. A godly spouse keeps his or her vows. If you're married, are you faithful to your marriage? Now, I'm not just meaning if you're married, don't cheat on your spouse. Although, I do mean that. Don't cheat on your spouse. But are you the kind of person who is committed, truly, long as you both shall live, committed to your spouse? Do you guard your thought life? Do you make sure not to compare your spouse to others? Do you make sure not to daydream about having somebody else? Do you make sure that you will keep your sacred vows because you promise for better or for worse that you would be faithful to your spouse? Are you that kind of person? Then comes children. Listen to me when you hear this. If you're married, your spouse is a greater priority than your children. It comes in that order. It didn't say children, then wife. It said wife, then children. Married people, your commitment to your spouse is of greater importance than your commitment to your children. The children of a leader in the church 
should be, and this is a tough translation here because the word could be translated two ways. The ESV translates the word believers. And so it may be just as simple as it seems that the children of pastors need to be Christians. But I think that a different translation might be a little more helpful. It's a, it's a form of the Greek word pistos, which is the Greek word for faith or believing. But there are a handful of Bible translations that will translate that word faithful instead of believing. The children of a leader must be faithful. And I believe that that fits better with what follows in this verse. And it fits better with what we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is a parallel. Listen to the parallel in 1 Timothy 3, 4, and you'll see that it looks more like faithful. It says of an elder, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. The children of a leader, I think what we're seeing here, need to be faithful to follow and obey their parents. A church leader's children should not be guilty of debauchery, that is big time ugly sins like drunkenness and sexual immorality. A leader's children must not be guilty of insubordination, that is rebellion against their parents and just flat ugly disobedience. The point that it seems to me that Paul is making here in Titus when he describes what the children are supposed to be is that the children of a church leader should not be a hindrance to the ministry. And what that means is that the parent is taking an active role in the lives of his children for their good. Now, you know what else it means? Just so you get it right. And you need to hear me on this, even though I don't have any problems to tell you about right now. But other pastors do. What that means is that the children of the pastor are more important than his ministry to you. My, my wife will be a higher priority to me than you. My children will be a higher priority to me than you. And I like you, at least most of you. Anthony laughed about as loud as anybody right there, just so you know. No, I am grateful to God to be able to serve you. But God, I can't serve you correctly if I don't love God first, my wife next, my children next, and then we'll talk. Make sense? But in this first major section, Paul is making it plain that the person who is most useful in leadership in the church must be first and foremost a family man. He must be devoted to his wife and devoted to his kids so as not to disqualify himself from ministry. As we already said, this can apply really to anybody who wants to serve in the church. God wants every one of us to think clearly about how we might be used of God in the body. And if you wish to be used of God in the body, you must first know and be devoted to God. Then you must be doing things that show that you are set rightly with your family. I don't care whether you want to be a pastor or a worship helper or you want to pass out the song sheets. Or you want to encourage people with notes on the weekends? If, if you don't love God first, your spouse next, any children that the Lord has given you next, before that, 
you're probably messing things up. So get your family life in order, if you can, to the glory of God. Third point, recognize the importance of character in a leader. Or for you, get your character in order to be a leader. Verses 7 and 8. For an overseer's God's steward must be above reproach. He must be not, not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So now the spotlight shines on the potential leader's character. See, as a steward, as one who cares for the resources of the church of God, notice the change to overseer that fits stewardship very well. Church leader needs to have certain qualities. And here Paul lists five negatives that a leader, any good servant leader, should not have. And then he follows the list with six positive things that a church leader must have. And they can all be summed up with that phrase we saw above reproach. Not just with your family, but with your life, you need to be above reproach that people can't hurl stones at your character. So, let's look at the list. This will happen moderately quickly. What must a church leader not have in his life? And again, I don't care if you think you're a leader or not. None of these should be in your life, no matter who you are in the church. Like the word arrogant. In Greek, there's a word there. It means self-willed. Means to be so focused on your own desires that you're unwilling to consider the desires of others of, uh, or even of God. There's an ungodly self assertiveness or boldness that's in view here. An arrogant person says, I will do things my way, I know what's best, and I'm not hearing anybody else. John MacArthur says, self-interest is in one way or another the root of all sin because it not only disregards the interests and welfare of other people, but even more importantly, disregards God's will and replaces his purpose and glory with man's. The next one is quick-tempered. That's prone to anger, irascible. This is a person who's marked by regularly and easily flying off the handle. It's not just that this person gets angry. Anybody can get angry. But they do it very often and to the extreme. I think you know people like this. I've heard stories of, of, of churches who had men who, as a pastor, they, they, would, they would shout people down. They would yell at people in their office. I knew one secretary told me she knew a pastor who would throw books at the wall when he got mad at things. Most of my books are in my computer. That would be weird. Church leader must not be given to fits of anger. Next one is a drunkard. Literally the companion of wine. That involves overindulging in wine or drunkenness. Let's be honest here, folks. The Bible does not forbid a church leader or a church member from all alcohol all the time. However, and be clear with me here, I want you to get this, whether it's you for yourself or for the family around you, under no circumstances should a church leader or any Christian be characterized as either always having a drink in his hand and never, not ever, should a Christian be characterized by being drunk. 
Drunkenness is a sin and it does terrible damage. Next one's violent. The picture here is a bruiser, a fighter, eager to strike a blow is the way that it's worded. See, some people are not just quick-tempered. They actually are prone to smack somebody. Not a good quality in a pastor. Greedy for gain. Eager for base gain. Greedy for money. Some people who take leadership roles, paid leadership roles in churches and denominations, they're doing it because they they, they want to, to get an easy paycheck. They think they can bilk people for money, but God has never been pleased by somebody whose life is driven by a desire for money. Jesus said, you nobody can serve both God and money in Matthew 6:25. Now, that's not saying you're not supposed to pay your pastor. In fact, you probably should. But Church leaders must not be greedy. No church leader should think he's going to get rich off the ministry. And if he's getting rich off the ministry, there may be something that's out of place. Now, those are the things that should not be in the church leader's character. So here's what you need to ask yourself. Am I given to any of those things that Travis just listed from the scriptures? Because if you're given to any of those things, I don't care whether you want to be a pastor or not, whether you could ever be a pastor or not, you should be repenting if those things are in your life. Now, six things a leader ought to be. Hospitable, generous to guests, warm, welcoming. Faithful leaders are happy to have you as a guest in their home. They're happy to have people as guests in their home. A lover of good. There's no, I, I don't even... I can't explain that other than it's someone who loves good. That's what the words mean. Self-controlled. That's a compound Greek word for mind and safety or soundness. Self-control here has to do with having a controlled mind. A church leader does not let his or her mind be filled with evil thoughts. Upright, righteousness or justice in a legal sense. Leaders do what's right, what God considers to be just. Church leaders obey the word of God. Holy, that has to do with piety, holiness, being undefiled by sin. Church leaders, like all Christians, do battle against sin. None of us is perfect. None of us is even close to perfect. But all of us should be battling against sin with everything we've got. And then disciplined having control over yourself, having mastery of yourself. A faithful church leader works hard to be sure that his flesh doesn't run away with him. He sets limits for himself. He keeps his mind and his life under control. Now you put all that stuff together. By the way, did the list put you to sleep or are you still with me? You here? Okay, good, I'm glad. This helps me. All right, put that whole list together. This may not seem profound to you, But a person who wishes to be a leader or helper in the church needs to be a person who has character. I think that's all this says. If you think through those things, those negatives and those positives, did any one of those things take you by surprise? What? I'm not supposed to be a drunk? Who knew? I can't have extra wives? I had no idea. I'm not supposed to punch people? Again, I think you know this is normal, right? Not one of those things is extravagantly high character. It's just Christian living. 
All of these things are to be true of all of us here. Now, I'll tell you this, none of us are perfect in almost any of these areas. But we should be working to see these areas improve in our lives. Fourth point, last point. Recognize the importance of the doctrine of a leader. Or you get your doctrine in order to become a leader. Verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This last verse here is the final category that a church elder must meet. Paul gives it a lot of space. He gives this more words than the family section. If you want to be an elder, you want to be a pastor, you've got to have a good family life. You want to be an elder, you want to be a pastor, you've got to have character. But you must, absolutely must, have solid biblical doctrine. A few of us were talking about that this morning. Doctrine very much matters and you shouldn't be lazy about it. Speaking of the elder, Paul says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So a pastor has to cling tightly, never even for a moment letting go of the trustworthy word, the Bible, as it's been taught for generations. Trust in the Bible, keeping faithful biblical interpretation. That is central to what church leaders are supposed to do. And why should an elder keep to the word like that so solidly? We get two reasons, two jobs. Pastors, elders, overseers are supposed to instruct people in right doctrine and they are to reprove, they are to rebuke, they are to correct those who would teach false doctrine. And neither of those things can be done if the pastor is not committed to the word of God and to rightly handling it. Never under any circumstances allow any adjustment to the gospel or the word of God. Never. If you look around the world, if you look even around our own city, you're going to see churches and individuals who just refuse to stand firm on the Bible as the inspired, unfailing, fully sufficient word of Almighty God. We need to make it plain, regardless of how popular or unpopular it will be, we need to make it plain that we, as Jude would say to us, we hold to the faith that is once for all time delivered to the saints. Now again, maybe you're not called to be an elder or pastor. I get it. But there's something for you to learn here too. If doctrine in a pastor is crucial, doctrine in a church member and a servant in the church is crucial too. If the pastor's job is to teach you, it is your job to listen, to learn, to study, to be taught, and to grow in faithful biblical doctrine. That is your job. Get your doctrine in order if you're going to be a faithful part of the church. Don't assume things to be true without biblical support. The Bible is your authority. You believe the Bible above every other ounce of evidence you could ever find. You also read good books, listen to good messages by preachers and teachers who are devoted to the Bible. But I will tell you this, be careful, because just because a man says he's devoted to the Bible does not make it so. There are men who will hold their Bible up and say, this is my Bible, I am what it says I am, and they are wrong, wrong people. 
detest those who teach things? Is the thing that the man in the pulpit saying, does it match the scriptures? Is the person in the pulpit saying something that nobody else in the church has been saying over the years? Worse yet, is the person in the pulpit proclaiming a heresy that the church has already pointed out was wrong and shown you why? Be careful. What you think, what you believe, matters very much. So Christians, we've seen God's desire here for godly leadership in the church. He wants his people to be devoted to their families, devoted to Christian character, and devoted to biblical doctrine. Ask yourself, ask the Lord to tell you, where, Lord, do I need to grow? How can you serve more than you're serving? Formally, God wants every local church to be led by a group of godly men, a plurality of elders. And godly elders need to be faithful to their home lives, growing in their character, and strong in their doctrine, able both to teach the faithful and reprove those led astray. Pray that God would provide our church with even more men who can serve like this. And if you know of a man who you believe fits that picture... Talk to one of the elders about him, myself, Jason, Ed. Talk to us so that we can look into him and his potential to serve. And perhaps all this has to come back to the very simplest route for you here today. God wants his people to serve and work in the church to help others to grow. He wants people to help to take the gospel to the lost, but... Before you can join God in that service, you must become God's child. Maybe you heard those standards listed for serving in the church. And maybe you noticed that your character is not perfect in those 11 standards I gave, not counting the family stuff even. Let me tell you. The standard for getting into the family of God is even higher than those standards right there. God demands that we be perfect if we wish to be in his presence. You cannot enter the presence of God without absolute, infinite perfection because anything less is an infinite offense to God. But none of us is perfect on our own we're not close. Thanks to God. He's given us a way that we can be made perfect. We can be counted perfect. We've all failed to meet God's standard. But God sent someone to make things right between us and God. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for the wrongs that we've done. God sent Jesus to live out the perfection that you and I have never lived. And this is what God calls you to do to be in his family. He calls you to believe. Believe Jesus is God's son. Believe Jesus died for your sins. Believe that Jesus rose from the grave after he paid for your sins. Believe that Jesus is the only way you can be saved and he will forgive you of your sins. Grant you God's perfection to your record as a gift, though you've never lived it out. And he'll make you into a child of God. That is the good news of Jesus. 
And that is the doctrine we cling to above all else. If you don't know Jesus, cry out to him in your heart today as you believe and turn from your sin, and he will save your soul. Let's pray. Father, we bow. We ask you for mercy. We ask you to teach us, grow us, change us, convict us. Help us to be godly in dealing with our family, in dealing with our character, in dealing with the word. Help us love you and know you better. Make us faithful. Lord, I would ask for you to challenge anyone who doesn't know you or doesn't grasp the gospel to get it. And I ask that you would fill our church with godly men who are ready to lead as elders, for godly women who are willing to help other women be strong and godly. And let this church grow to your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.